I'm Kendra Kruger. And I'm Tony Barsik. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, November 25th, 2014. Coming up, we talk to John Warner of the Warner Babcock Institute for Green Chemistry about how environmentally safe technology has to start with developing greener chemistry. And there's a lot to learn from nature on how to do it. We begin with a look at some recent news in science. If you want an honest answer from a banker, don't remind him he's a banker, according to findings from a Renew Research study. Swiss researchers studied bank workers and other professionals in experiments in which they won more money if they cheated. They found that bankers were more dishonest when they were made particularly aware of their professional role. But when they were primed to think about their life outside of banking, they were less inclined to cheat. No other professionals showed the same traits. The researchers say the findings suggest that there is something about the banking culture that makes people more likely to lie for financial gain. Also, the same culture may be tolerant towards unethical behaviors. The study was published last week in the journal Nature. Human lifespans keep getting longer, and some researchers predict that this trend will continue. Well, it seems the fungi have beat us to it. One individual of a mushroom-forming fungus may be one of the biggest and oldest living organisms. Over 1,500 years, 37 acres, and 10,000 kilograms. In research reported in the journal Science last week, Canadian geneticists studied the patterns of mutation in a fungus which parasitizes tree roots in temperate forests. They studied one individual that had colonized the entire area of Exit Island, a three-acre island in Lake Ontario. The scientists took samples from different trees infected by this one fungus and sequenced their genomes. They hypothesized that as the fungus spread further apart, there would be more mutations, and the rate of mutation could then be calculated. Surprisingly, they found very small genetic differences between different samples from this same individual. The scientists suggested that the stem cells where the fungus grows divide very slowly, which would reduce the rate of mutation. Because most mutations are not beneficial, lowering the rate of mutations can extend the lifespan. They didn't go so, f- so far as to suggest that this finding could be applied to humans, but someone probably will. A significant advancement has been made in the control of biocircuitry. In a biocircuit, scientists utilize chemical and biological interactions to mimic the behavior of electronic logic, or information processing systems. They say that these little bio-robots could one day in the future detect cancerous cells, then turn on all the right mechanisms to kill it. However, biology has turned out to not be as predictable as a typical electronic circuit. This is usually due to the fact that these biological elements do not line up and connect end-to-end like wires, resistors, and capacitors. Instead, they are all floating around in a cell, and it becomes difficult for information to flow in the right direction or order for something like a feedback system. A bioengineering group at MIT believes they have created a device called Load Driver to help facilitate the cell feedback process. The results published this week in Nature Biotechnology show that the driver provided a significant improvement in response time and bandwidth of the biocircuit. Maybe in the future, we'll be feeding our iPhones instead of plugging them in. 
Listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Kendra Kruger. There's a lot of attention right now on creating environmentally friendly technology, non toxic, and sustainable manufacturing. But as Dr. John Warner explains, it all has to start with the chemistry. John Warner is a chemist, professor, and co founder of the Warner Babcock Institute for Green Chemistry. We sat down after a recent speech he gave at this year's National Bioneers Conference. He speaks profoundly about learning methods from nature to create safer, more resilient, and more elegant chemistry. I saw your talk at Bioneers, and one of the big issues you spoke about was how, in a lot of chemical development today, these are happening at high temperatures, high pressures. There's a lot of forces involved to make these reactions happen. But nature can create a huge diversity of materials and all at room temperature and atmospheric pressure. What is it that we can learn from nature on how to do it better? That's a, an important question and, and something obviously near and dear to my heart. You know, the, the field of biomimicry has been around for a long time, and Janine Benyus, the author of the book Biomimicry, has been doing brilliant work, and there's so many people that are looking at how nature designs materials, and it, it's just beautiful work. But I'm a chemist. I, I make molecules, I make polymers, and I was reflecting once on, you know, that you know we know that everything in nature happens at room temperature, at ambient pressure, using water for the most part of the solvent. And we we see that as a, as, as a really cool aspirational thing to do. But I, I got really curious and said, why does nature work so well at these you know, moderate temperatures? What, what is it that, that it does? And that's when the, the epiphany happened that I realized that you know, I'm an organic chemist. When we learn about organic chemistry, we learn about molecular shapes. It's uh, you know, a couple semester classes in which we learn that certain atoms adopt certain orbitals that have certain geometries and that a molecule is not just a ball of atoms but has a very specific geometry to it. And when two molecules react together, they don't just bang into each other, but they must line up and orient and collide in just the right trajectory for the chemical reaction to happen. Now, we humans, when we put molecules into a beaker and say react, we can't control that trajectory. So instead, we just heat up the, the matrix so that they bang into each other more. And because the frequency of collisions is increased, we statistically have a better chance of the right geometry, but it's just random collisions. We're not orienting, it's just happening. And the epiphany was that in nature, I can't think of any example where that happens. In nature, two molecules don't line up and just collide with each other. They always do a two-step process where they first orient. You know, we've got, you know, cells are not bags of liquids. They're gels and semi-solids, and everything is in the semi-condensed state in nature. And what happens is two molecules meander to each other, then they, they I use the phrase, snuggle up to each other using these non-covalent interactions. That orients them just the right way so that then 
bang, the chemical reaction happens. And so that I call non-covalent derivatization, and that's, that's kind of been my philosophy, is to look at traditional synthetic processes and industrial processes and extrapolate from nature how to impose this prior assembly and orientation so as to lower the temperature, increase the yield, and you know, use more compatible solvents to the environment. Yeah, and that reminds me of another thing you are talking about, of, of this sort of uh, survival of the most compatible. And yes. Instead of, like, often we think of the, the toughest, most violent actor is going to be the one that comes to the top. But really, right. nature is not working in that way. Where does that idea come from? Yeah, well, again, the, 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 the way that I'm, I'm looking at that is, you know, in nature, what we find is that if a predator was outlandishly successful at capturing its prey, it would soon eat up all of its prey and the prey would run out. And so you need a certain inefficiency, if you will, so that, you know, the, the prey can have a chance to, you know, fail every once in a while so that the, you know, you know so that it can grow and flourish, that the, the predator can fail every once in a while so that the prey can continue to flourish. And it has to be an equilibrium, really. You have to have both an equilibrium. If you, if you have too much in one direction, you know, it's not a stable um, equilibrium, it's off balance, and it's going to ultimately, you know, end and terminate in some kind of systematic change. And so what you, you know, so really what it is, it's the resilience to that change is what we're after. And so not something that can impose the change, but something that can be resilient to that change. So it's not necessarily the survival of the fittest, but the survival of the most compatible. It also... uh when you're talking about these predators that might need the opportunity to fail to bring in more of that random aspect of nature that there's some yeah. that things are not always going as planned so kind of changing this perspective in the scientific community of embracing the uncertainty observing the beauty and the ease at which nature can create you you say that there's a certain aesthetic to it what what do you mean mm-hmm. by that in that case, you know, the way I look at it is in the arts, you know, we have this illusion that there are two groups of people or two groups of ways of looking at the world, the artistic view and the scientific technical view. But it's interesting, if we go to an art museum, if, you know, we went to some art museum and we're looking in front of a painting, we could look at that painting and we could be really technical. We could say, oh, look at the brush stroke here and look at the density of color here, look at the juxtaposition of this color here and really get down to, you know, almost a mathematical description of how this painting has been constructed and what's going on. But then at the same time, we can step back and say, I like this painting. This painting is beautiful. This painting is aesthetically appealing. I, it frightens me. It's that that other half of our brain, the the, the aesthetic part of our brain that is not quite that technical side can also simultaneously respond to art. Over the last 150, 160 years of science and the scientific method, we have trained scientists to ignore that half mm-hmm. and have actually created an entire scientific culture that attempts to mask that part. You know, we don't, you know, an artist will stand in front of their painting and say, I painted this. A musician will compose and perform a piece of music and say, I wrote that. 
But in chemistry, when we communicate, or in science in general, we're trained to speak in the third person. We are, it is considered very bad form for a scientist to say, I took five grams of this molecule and mm-hmm. 10 grams of this molecule and I reacted it. We are trained as scientists to remove ourselves and say, five grams of this were taken with 10 grams of this to con- you know, and describe it from a very impassioned, supposed non-biased approach. Now, what we know in science is that when someone picks up and publishes a paper and three people repeat that paper, those three people will unlikely get identical results. They've got a precise description of what's happening, and one person is going to get a very successful yield, one's not going to get as much of a yield, and one's going to, you know, we're going to get a diversity of, of output from that description. And the reason is because of those intangibles that were left out because we tried to mask the bias. And so I feel that if we had science recombined with the aesthetic, not only you know, would we have better science because some of the things we're leaving out because we consider it too esoteric would be there in, in allowing the reader themselves to decide for themselves what's important and what's not important. But more importantly, I would argue that technologies that are not sustainable, technologies that are toxic, technologies that are harmful for the environment lack beauty lack aesthetic quality. Hmm. And if we had that as part of who we were as scientists, well, heck, pollution's ugly. And if we could turn back the clock 80 years, some of these technologies that we're stuck with now might not be here if whole humans that were both aesthetic and technical were approaching the scientific method. And so we've got, so, and I would argue, like I said, if, if I published a paper and I said at the first paragraph of the paper, hey, I work for a company who's likely to make a lot of money if this works. So, fellow reader, as you're reading this paper, <laughs> please understand my bias. Mm-hmm. And then speak you know, purely in, 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 as a human that this is what I'm doing, this is what I think, and this is what I want. As If I'm allowed to explain my bias, now the reader can analyze it within that context, and now we collectively as a society can fill in the gaps of what I may be missing because of my bias. And also, the thing that you mentioned is that in a lot of chemistry programs, there aren't any toxicology classes or environmental mm-hmm. mechanisms, requirements. Is Well, that's, yeah, that's a, a huge, huge issue. The field of green chemistry, people hear green everything now, and so it's, mm-hmm. society becomes kind of immune to the concept of green whatever. But green chemistry has been around for about 20 years, and essentially it's, the, it's an epiphany. I have a Ph.D. in chemistry. I got handed the document, got patted on top of the head, and sent out to industry to invent the future. Mm-hmm. Never in my academic career did I ever have a class in toxicology. Never have I had a class in environmental mechanics. I don't mean to be trained as a professional toxicologist, but even just understand the vaguest of of language, of semantics, of what resources are out there. And it turns out, if you look at every university that has a chemistry program, imagine you want to be a chemist. Go online and find the classes that you must take to become a chemist, and you will find mostly never, maybe rarely there might be one or two, but mostly never, you will never find a university that requires its students to have a class in 
mechanistic toxicology or environmental impacts. Now think about that for a minute. Doctors, lawyers, teachers, nurses, architects, when they graduate with their degree, they can't go practice until they take an exam and get a license, mostly just to make sure that they're doing things safely and correctly. No such thing in chemistry. What green chemistry says is if the chemist understood the mechanisms of these hazards and designed into the molecule the properties we wanted and designed out of the molecules the toxicity and environmental impact, we would no longer be dependent on the exposure mitigation because the material would be intrinsically less toxic. But if the people inventing the molecules have never had a class in toxicity or environmental impact, how can they invent something that doesn't have it if they don't know what causes it in the first place? In terms of what's happening right now out there the impacts that have been seen from green chemistry. You serve on a number of advisory committees. Is there any progress on integrating these concepts? There is a great progress. You know, I got to tell you, every company that is in the chemical enterprises, whether they're brand names, suppliers, or fundamental, you know, know, chemistry um, producers, all have from my perspective, embrace green chemistry at some level. They're either having, you know, training for, you know, orientation for new new scientists, having, you know, coursework, and they're having things internal to companies. They have, you know, put the 12 principles of green chemistry as part of their stage gate process. I've seen industry embrace green chemistry fairly quickly because it makes them more competitive, gets them faster to market, makes them, you know, so from a, from a, from a industrial business perspective, it's a no-brainer that this is kind of cool to have, you know, technologies that are less regulated because they're inherently less toxic. It's the universities that have been sluggish in adopting hmm. green chemistry. And so, so there's the catch-22, where we're supposed to grow an intellectual discourse and improve and, you know, make it, make it better. It's not happening as fast. Why do you think and that so, is? Is it because it's like an ingrained academic community? Well, that there's are- a- you know, you know it's, it's, it's not an epic battle of good and evil. Okay, we're not talking epic battles of good and evil here. This is just, there's inertia. You know, first is the practical thing. If no faculty member in a, in a chemistry program has had this training, right. who's going to teach it? Okay, and so there's, there's that very, very practical, well, okay, that's great. It would be great to teach this, but who's going to teach it and how are we going to do it? And I think that that's one of the biggest, you know, the students, once they hear about it, they say, you mean, you're not going to teach this, <laughs> but the, the practical limitations of if no one has the training. That's why the nonprofit organization called Beyond Benign, run by Amy Cannon, that's what its sole existence is, is to create curriculum for K-12 and universities to integrate green chemistry into the curriculum. There's a lot of other organizations that are doing this, too, but you know, the one that I'm most familiar with, because I'm the president of it, is Beyond Benign. Do you think that in the future, then, green chemistry will just be chemistry? Yes. You know, now, semantically, will it still have to be referred to as something? You've got to refer to it as something. How can you discuss it? And, you know, when, when... you know, when a chemist goes to become a chemist, they take a class called analytical chemistry. They take a class called physical chemistry. They take a class called organic chemistry. <laughs> now, one would argue 
that you cannot be a pure organic chemist without doing analytical, physical, and other things. You can't function as a chemist without doing a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. But you, you use these classes in this semantics as the reductionist approach to have a textbook, to have journals, to have classes, to have workshops, so as to create a, you know, a package, an intellectual package to discuss and to transmit. We need that for green chemistry, too. Do you, you think that this sort of green perspective is going to spill beyond chemistry? I mean, it, you've already uh, had some applications to semiconductor development. What what mm-hmm. else is out there? Well, again, the thing is, is you know, it's a really interesting concept, the concept of design, okay? Whether it's an engineer, whether it's a designer, you can, and, and this is where biomimicry comes back into play again. You can look at nature and look at the wing of a bird and say, man, if we mimic that and we made that as part of an airplane, the airplane would be better. Or we look at the, 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 the surface of a shock and say, wow, look at how the shock moves and repels microbial life if we did that. People who want to create new products, they aren't the ones that make the building blocks. The chemists make the building blocks. Hmm. All right, and so if no matter how much you want to make a safe, non-toxic product, if your building blocks are toxic and not safe, what do you do? So at the end of the day, there's a certain fundamentalness to chemistry that we have, and it's really interesting in the field of sustainability. We have people, you know, making solar panels, making water purification devices, constructing all these sustainable products, but the building blocks that they had constructed with are still toxic, are still got, got, got issues with them. And so I'm not saying that green chemistry is the answer to everything. Obviously, the, the world around sustainability needs everybody participating, and they're all equally important. I, myself, am a chemist. And rather than being, be grandiose and say that what, what is important to me is green chemistry, that's just a little part of the big picture. But if the chemists aren't making safe and non-toxic materials, it doesn't matter how sustainable the product is. At the end of its life, when we throw it in a landfill, it's going to seep nasty molecules, we're still in trouble. And so the whole holistic approach has to be that the building blocks themselves. But here's the problem. If you imagine corralling up a bunch of middle school children, high school kids, and you get the ones that, you know, they, their eyes are a big as silver dollars. They want to save the world, whatever that means to them. And they say, I want to, you know, save the world. I want to do something important to save the world. And they make a list of what careers they could do, you know, what majors they should be at the university. It's unlikely anyone that's saying, I want to save the world from sustainability is going to say, I'm going to be a chemist. And then here's the problem. If they're not going into chemistry, who's going to invent the safe, non-toxic technology? So at the end of the day, it seems simple that we need the building blocks so that we can have a truly sustainable future. And that's, that's where green chemistry comes in. It's not everything, it's, but it's a, an important piece in the entire you know, inventive process. That was John Warner, green chemist, co-founder of the Warner Babcock Institute for Green Chemistry and recipient of this year's Perkin Medal, thought to be the highest award in the field of chemistry, an extended interview including a conversation about the differences between entropy and enthalpy can be found on our blog at howonearthradio.org later today.
that's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producers are Jane Palmer and Kendra Kruger. This week's show is produced and engineered by Kendra Kruger. Additional contributions by Beth Bennett and Jane Palmer. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Comida. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Kendra Kruger. And I'm Tony Barsik.